This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Much of the challenge of information architecture since the inception of the web has revolved around making coherent and useful websites and web pages. However, it is becoming just as common to see information presented in small discrete chunks, known as widgets. In his presentation, IA for Tiny Stuff, Exploring Widgets and Gadgets, Martin Bellum examines what makes a successful widget from an information delivery point of view. As well, Martin looks at how information professionals can help develop more playful ways of representing and structuring information being presented. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Um, thank you very much for coming along. I realize uh, I'm a bit late starting, and uh, there's the competing attraction of the Miami sunshine outside. So um, thank you very much. I know I'm the last thing separating you from your lunch, so I shall try and get through this quite quickly. I wanted to start by thinking a bit about the history of the way people have published information. Um, if you go back into the old, 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 old days, pretty much the only way you could publish something was by bashing it into the side of a stone. Um, this wasn't a very portable format, and it certainly didn't have RSS feeds. But mankind's in ingenuity knows no bounds, and it didn't take long before people realized that actually you could mash up bits of trees, or you could write on the skins of dead animals. And the parchment and the book came about. And in Western Europe, there were factories of monks carefully producing handwritten copies of books. You can see one in Lindisfarne has customized this one. Um, you know what's coming next the printing press. Suddenly, it's a lot easier to distribute information. Um, the monks are really unhappy about this, actually. Their monopoly has been destroyed. If they'd had an equivalent of the RIAA, I assume they would have gone around Europe suing people for glancing at these new mechanically published books. Um, with the increasing amount of printed material available, society became more literate. And what happens after that is we have libraries everywhere, um, carefully guarded by armies of librarians cataloging and sorting and ordering books. And if you had too many books to fit into your library, well, then you could put it on microfiche. Man was always thinking of brilliant new ways to get information into small spaces. The reason we're all here is because in the early 1990s, the World Wide Web arrived. What a brilliant idea, the promise that every single bit of human information would be available in one place, your computer, your network. You'd be able to look at everything, everything would be connected, everything would be up to date, the sum of all knowledge would be there. And then a few years ago, someone thought that would be really great if it was in a 200 pixel by 140 pixel widget. And we ended up where we are today. Now, I'm not actually going to stand here and tell you that the widget is the pinnacle of mankind's achievement in distributing information. Um, but I do think it is something that we're going to increasingly come across over the next couple of years um, as businesses begin to, uh, to focus on it. 
Um, there was a recent article on uh, Fumsy saying that um, you know, uh, consumers are already moving ahead in this space. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit now about what I mean by a widget here. It's a, a kind of a very generic term. Um, people with uh, Macs will be familiar with the dashboard widgets that you've got, and now Microsoft have their own version in Vista. Um, but widgets are also things like the Google gadgets that you can embed on a web page or on your iGoogle startup page. People also term things like Facebook applications as widgets. Um, they're often more complicated, more sophisticated, with maybe two or three pages to them. But essentially, it's the idea of embedding something from one website into another website or onto the desktop of your computer. I'm going to make broad, sweeping generalizations across the whole of the widget sphere during this talk. So just kind of think of this as a cross-platform uh, thing, although you know, the platforms have different technical capabilities. But I, I don't really want to touch upon that. Uh, one of the things that's really important for us to remember is that for lots of us, we think widgets are a bit silly, and why would you clutter your desktop up with stuff like that? But it's quite important to think that there's a whole generation of kids who, for them, the web is putting badges and digital trinkets onto their MySpace pages, and they're gradually going to be moving into the work area, and they'll be becoming young consumers. And so I think it's something that we need to, um, to, to really bear in mind in the next few years. Uh, otherwise, we'll end up like the uh, CEO who prints out their emails, emails still. Um, I wanted to look a little bit at the uh, typical simple architecture for a widget. Um, <laughs> that's not it. I always put this slide into every presentation to intimidate the audience. Basically, when you go, you're going to think it seemed so complicated at the start of the presentation. Now I really understand it. He was brilliant. He was great. <laughs> Um, this is actually my uh, simple widget architecture. Basically, most widgets have a big logo and a link to someone's home page at the top. They have a tiny control which allows you to edit either the properties of the content or some sort of uh, appearance of the widget. They have a button to close or delete it. They have a picture to make it visually attractive. And they have some sort of content feed that's usually uh, delivered via RSS. And usually, they're quite, quite dull. And that's one of the things I want to talk about today is basically making sure in that small space, how do you know which are the right things to include, and how can we make it a bit more fun? Um, now, case studies at conferences are always really, really great, but they're much, much more enjoyable if they're fictional. So I'd like to introduce you to a company called Nom Nom, who are named after the uh, ICANN has cheeseburger pandas having their breakfast picture. Um, it's a company that sells small, fluffy toys, and the target market is girls aged 9 to 15. Um, it's a pretty cynical product proposition, but then perhaps it's never too early to sort of indoctrinate our children into the ways of shallow consumerism. Um, Nom Nom have done what everyone's done this year, which is hired a whizzy internet consultant like myself, and the consultant has looked at his watch, said it's 2008, it's the year of the widget, you need to get your widget strategy in order. And the company, having paid very much for the WYSI consultant, think this is a great idea, so start setting about how they're going to put their widget strategy together. So eventually, they all get around the table for uh, the big meeting where they decide what's going to go on to the widget. Now, the first people to have a say are the marketing team. And their widget looks like this. They've come up with the idea that cute pictures of fluffy baby animals will uh, make girls want to put the widget onto their MySpace or Bebo pages, in much the, way, the same way that I've come up with the idea that if my PowerPoint has got cute animals on it, you'll be more inclined to feel nice and generously warm towards me. 
Um, so the marketing team have prioritized the things that are important for the marketing team. The branding's very strong. They want people to visit the Nom Nom website. Uh, I did actually look up what it was on the web if you went to nomnom.com. It turns out it's a small Chinese restaurant somewhere, which was quite lucky. I only suddenly thought people might type the URL in a bit late in the day. Um, but yeah, so the marketing team want people to go through to the, uh, the company's homepage, and they're interested in the, in the uh, widget spreading and becoming viral. So they want people to be able to add the widget to their site very easily, and they want to be able to email the widget to a friend very easily. Those are the priorities for the marketing team. Um, obviously, the sales team think this is absolutely crazy, and they think the widget should look like this. As well as the picture of the cute baby animal, it needs a picture of the product as well and a very big buy call to action. And they also think they can diversify their sales by including buttons where you can get the picture of the baby animal as a poster or a key fob or, or other things. So this is really what the widget looks like for the sales team. It's a channel to drive sales. Next up is the technical team. I know how much information architects and developers get on. And uh, you know what the technical team want? Well, first of all... <laughs> The RSS feed, because of course the girls are going to want to make their own mashups with it. We're going to be signing in with OpenID because it's the new thing. And obviously, they've opened up an API so the girls can build their own widgets. Now, all those things are not terrible product propositions in and of themselves, but they're really focusing on one thing that the widget can do. And they've forgotten the one thing that us information architects should always be remembering, which is what was it that the user actually wanted? And in this case, all the user wants from their widget is a big picture of a baby animal. Um, my wife thinks that picture's really quite creepy and very, possi <laughs> very possibly a man in a baby panda suit. <laughs> um, to be slightly more serious uh, uh, for a moment, um, we're used to thinking about um, uh, websites uh, as physical spaces, mimicking physical environments. And if you think the average sort of e-commerce site, it's more like a shopping center. If you can just see the, um, the top of the slide there, I did actually write the slide in American English, but uh, I can't quite bring myself to say the M word. It's a shopping center that they're visiting there. Um, people can come and go. There's a relative amount of uh, anonymity, and people you know, can choose to buy stuff or, or not choose to buy stuff. But a widget isn't like that. It isn't this kind of space for people. They've either put it onto their desktop or they've put it onto their own website. Now, the thing, especially if you're thinking about this, this younger generation, is that image is really, really important. Putting something on your desktop where you do your work and you organize your information is a bit like having the widget in your school locker. But actually putting it on your website is much more like pinning a badge to yourself and walking around saying, you know, I, I like this band, I like this film, I, I like this company's brand. These widgets are very, very personal things for the user. And so it's really important for us to uh, uh, be able to steer the direction that widgets are, uh, are designed towards what the user wants. Um, you know, information architects are often thought of as uh, an aligning discipline, that we align um, you know, the needs of the business with the needs of the user and our own desperate desire to organize everything in the whole of the universe to within an inch of its life. And we just need to remember with widgets that it's a personal thing. And it's also important, as you're putting the flow together for how someone would download and use a widget, to think about where this personalization will occur. Um, there's a Sky News Yahoo widget. Sky, Sky News is a 24-hour news channel in the UK. 
um, and it has lots and lots of functions on it. Um, it's a uh, it's lovely flash interface, and you can scroll through the headlines, and you can also change which feed it uses. So if you want the business news, you download the Sky widget, and then you fiddle with the configuration, and you pick business news, and then you get the business headlines. But what Forbes do is they provide a page full of widgets. Now, basically, it's the same widget over and over again, just tuned to a different RSS feed. But it takes a whole step out of the configuration process for the user. If they just know that they want the technology headlines, they don't have to learn the widget interface. They can just simply have the technology headline widget. You need to work out the best place for these kind of um, customizations and personalizations to happen. This is choosing the content. If, on the other hand, it's something like selecting the color, and again, going back to the young girls, they'd probably change you know, the skin on their live journal page three times a week. They'd probably want to change the color on the widget to match it. So that's something that should be presented quite up front to the user um, rather than a choice of content. But, but something like this, this is much more easily done when the user is actually choosing the widget. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, time. It's uh, a much underused dimension. If you don't know why that blue box represents time, you're definitely not British. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's something that we kind of websites haven't been very good at, but um, you need to think about the different way of treating content because of time. Um, with websites, it's fine to leave an event website up as a record of the event. So that was the um, website for the 94 World Cup, which was in the States. That was the first World Cup to have a website, and that was still there until actually a few, few months ago. It still was live on some mirror servers, and it's fine to just leave it like that. It's a historical record, the same way that at the end of this summit, it will be fine to leave the IA Summit 2008 website intact. But if you think about events like that, you might want to go back to the website, but do you really still need a widget on your desktop or um, on your website for an event that was a couple of years ago? If you, now that England haven't qualified for Euro 2008, um, the biggest sporting event of the summer will be the Olympics. And there'll be plenty of activity in the widget sphere about the Olympics. Um, stories about the Olympics will bubble up with the torch, and then eventually there'll be a lot of stories during the event itself, and then it'll tail off. Now, again, on your website, you're fine to leave an opinion piece with, um, you know, wasn't it a great Olympics or wasn't it a terrible Olympics? Imagine having it somewhere like that, whichever your opinion is. Um, but on a widget, you don't want to just leave that there. Um, you can put a different news story, a different type of content through to the widget. Thank the user for downloading a widget that has been event-specific and try and point them in the direction of another widget. It's something that it costs nothing to be polite, but you just need to think a little bit about if the news feed for a particular widget is going to dry up, let the user know rather than just let the widget die. You might also find that you had a brilliant plan for a widget, and then for some reason uh, you can't go through with it because Fox intervene and cancel something. So if you had your Futurama episode-by-episode episode widget, and then the show came to the end of a run, you can cross-promote to another you know, campaign widget to bring the show back. But you need to be a bit careful about doing this kind of cross-promotion, because you have to remember that it's a personal space. So if I downloaded a widget for a particular band, and then actually they're not touring this month, so you decide to put the tour dates of another band on, that's not what I asked for uh, as a user. So you need to, it's a very tight range of what you can actually cross-promote off, off widgets. Um, another thing that I, I think widgets can be more playful and have more of a mimic of a physical environment is um, using, using time again as that extra dimension. 
Um, for most of the week, most sports stadiums all around the world are completely empty, and there's nothing happening. And most widgets at the same time are pushing out a whole load of really insignificant news that the right-back's ankle, who might have been the substitute of the weekend, well, they're not sure whether it's swollen or not, and the coach thinks it's really important to win the game this weekend. And your widget keeps bringing all this kind of news through. But I don't really care about that. What I care about is the two hours when the game is actually on. And you can see that there's a transformation in the physical environment. I mean, this is Leighton Orient. They're a very small uh, football team in East London, so their ground never gets full. But, you know, you can see there are a few people there. And why can't widgets and stuff do, do the same sort of thing? If you think of the kind of the score, the scoreboard-type widget, for most of the week, you can just leave it blank and lying dormant. It's not that important. I don't need to know that the coach thinks it's a must-win game. And it's just lurking on the corner of my desktop or on my website doing nothing. But at the moment when the game is taking place, light it up, illuminate the widget, draw attention to the fact that you have a recurring um, event that's a short time duration. These are kind of things that you can do with widgets that it's not the same environment as a web, where you, whereas the web where you've got a whole web page and navigation and stuff like that. You can do very focused, specific time-based content things. Um, another thing that you can do to make widgets much more interesting and exciting is to include um, Easter eggs in them. Um, uh, not chocolate Easter eggs, although I guess that would appeal to the demographic of the, the nom-noms as well. Um, U2 uh, did this recently. Um, their widget to promote the U2 3D film, um, if you hovered over, I think, the logo in the top left-hand corner for about 10 seconds, it actually unlocked some additional video content. Now, of course, most users aren't going to find that by serendipity, so you need to then make a plan to leak out how you can get hold of the Easter egg information. They did it on a couple of fan message boards. And then the information that there was extra content on the widget spread like wildfire. And what was really important about that was that, basically, people have initially downloaded the widget and they're excited about it and they've put it on their site. But then maybe they're not so conscious of coming back to it every couple of days to check whether new stuff has been added um, or there's, particularly with this kind of video content. And having that Easter egg meant there was a whole buzz about the widget again a few weeks after the first initial run of downloading had been done, so that everyone who, was down, who had downloaded it was excited that they had the new content to get. It was a really, really neat way of, um, of re-promoting the widget. And so, again, it's the kind of thing that you can think of, particularly with multimedia stuff. Is there content or hidden activity that you can, uh, that you can build into your widgets? I want to uh, take another musical example. This is a, a Welsh band called the Super Furry Animals. They like to dress up as yetis at their concert. It's, it's very effective. I don't know why. Um, they recently uh, toured the States, and they had a, a widget to promote the tour. Um, unfortunately, I got the screen grab after the tour had finished, so you can see that they were playing in random venues in some city. Um, that, for example, is, is a, a widget not degrading very well. Um, but what the widget actually allowed you to do when it was active was you could pick the date that you were going to see the band, and then it gave you a list of about 40 of their songs, and then you could vote for the song that you most wanted to hear that evening. The thing with this was it provided, firstly, a viral way of promoting the tour, but it also provided some offline engagement as well. The widget wasn't just an online experience. It was something that took the experience of the widget um, to the concert itself. You didn't know whether your votes had really influenced what they were going to play. Were you going to hear your favorite song? Um, and it also was a way of promoting the album and the tour itself. 
Um, it was a very, very neat piece of interaction and a really good way of, of getting a, a standalone offline event connected to a, to a small online widget. And I said I was going to race through it, and I've pretty much raced through it. I don't have a great deal else to say. I think the thing that's really important for us to remember, though, is that there is this huge generation gap between us as people who just didn't grow up using widgets and people for whom the web is dragging things onto their profile page. Um, they're going to expect to be able to do that through the rest of their web usage, and they will, in turn, will be baffled by whatever comes along five years after that and think it's a crazy waste of time. Why would people want to do that? Um, there's a whole range of widgets out there. The Yahoo Widget gal Gallery has something like 4,500 widgets in there. So increasingly, businesses are interested in this. And it's one of those things where if a business isn't making its own official widgets, very often people are stepping in and making widgets for the business, which is obviously a bit of a worry from a branding point of view, and you're losing control of what the content is. Um, so my main thing is, if you only take one thing away from this presentation, it's that I'm British and really, really a nice person. Thank you very much. <laughs> Any questions? Hey, Martin. Um, I'm just curious, what would you say is different between a widget and a portlet? And a portlet? Uh, possibly that we don't use the word portlet very much on the other side of the Atlantic. That's <laughs> possible. Can you talk a little about the distinction between, you said it's kind of a personal expression, so putting up a widget to, I don't know, let your freak flag fly versus putting up a widget that's utilitarian that you, you use to do something with for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a big demographic difference in those kind, kind of things as well. So the kind of widgets that I've got on, uh, on my Facebook page are like the, the Doppler widget. It's, you know, very functional things that display uh, factual information. I'm not kind of keen on uh, downloading more entertainment-based widgets. Um, I think that the thing is that um, you, you need to make sure that you've really targeted kind of distinct user groups with widgets. So... Um, if you're looking at an entertainment widget or a, you know, a, a small thing like that, you, you're really trying to make it look snazzy and uh, bright and vibrant. If you're doing utilitarian stuff, then pretty much the usual kind of web interface conventions apply, except that all the icons are really, really small. Um, and I think you just have to be very careful about not overloading those kind of interfaces with, with too, much, uh, um, too many options and too much interactivity. That's the main thing. You, know, you want a widget that really accomplishes one task very well. That's the kind of work, thing that I would always aim towards is you know, a task-based widget should concentrate on performing one task. Maybe you want to add, a, add an event to a calendar, but you don't necessarily want to be able to scroll through all of the events in your calendar and edit them and send them to a friend all from one very small interface. That, that's my, my feeling on it. Can you talk a little bit about the limitations or, or maybe some design patterns around um, using widgets to support some kind of call to action that eventually puts somebody into an e-commerce conversion funnel? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think one of the, the main things is that um, you need to give a set good expectations of what people are going to get if they're going to be clicking through from a widget. So it's a, I don't know if anyone was at the uh, talk about the newspapers on mobile phones. Again, it's using labels really consistently and really precisely. Um, 
rather than, you know, you, you don't have much room to be vague in that kind, kind of space. Um, th those are the kind of things that, that I would look for if you're trying to do something transactional like that. You need to get really concise information. You know, in, in many ways, particularly if, if you're thinking of a, a widget that's, that's selling products, it's not too distinct from the kind of um, paid text adverts that you get in search engine results pages. You know, you've got a very small amount of um, space to work with, so any copy you use has to be really compelling and really focus exactly on, on what that particular user is looking for. I think one other thing that I would add is that there's a lot of excitement in the area, and I've just been doing some research about um, uh, British newspaper widgets, so w which newspapers in the UK um, provide widgets and what kind of functionality there is. And one of the things that I've found is that the take-up rate for using them is actually very, very low. And um, I wonder if it's, it's, you know, people have talked about this year being the year of the widget, and I wonder if maybe it may be next year rather than this year. I, I think it really is going to need those kind of 15- and 16-year-old kids to, to come through and be a bit older and start being um, really active consumers. That's, that's my feeling on it. Can you talk a little bit about how people organize widgets, so whether they're using a customized desktop? I know I tend to have widget crowd, and then I start deleting them all. But I'm noticing there are more and more through Google or through the Mac um, ways to organize widgets and how that might influence how we develop widgets and or push content out through them. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that we need to be careful of is that is trying to do the one widget that's all singing and all dancing that you want people to download. You kind of, there's a wide range of stuff that people can choose from, and there's a wide range of ways that you can organize it. So if on iGoogle, for example, you can put widgets, but you can also hide them behind tabs. So you can have your sports view or your news view or your, your music view. And I, I think the important thing when you're developing widgets is, is to actually make sure you're getting them really nice and compact so that you're giving the user more options. Um, most people using widgets on the desktop, for example, have got newer computers, so they're likely to have bigger, bigger monitors and stuff. But you still kind of got to remember that you're taking up a, a, you know, as you increase the size of your widget, you're increasingly taking up a greater percentage of someone's desktop and decreasing the amount of working space that, that, that they've got. I, so, I mean, I kind of, I'm always inclined towards smaller is better and less is more. Uh, in terms of, sorry. <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, sort of widget platforms, do you expect there's going to be some consolidation before we see the year of the widget? Uh, and sorry, and in the mobile space, are there any particular opportunities that you see for widget delivery there? I kind of I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the mobile space because I think I had a paragraph in my notes which I, I didn't mention. I think one of the things is that as people. Um, I know t traditionally Europe has, has been kind of ahead of the states with the browsing the internet on the phone, but the, the iPhone has kind of changed that dynamic somewhat. And I think as more phone manufacturers move towards uh, things with better browsing experiences, I think there's actually a real opportunity for widgets um, because they occupy that much smaller screen space um, that if you've got a good widget strategy in place um, now and for the next year and you're learning from that experience, that those widgets will translate really well into the mobile sphere. And actually, it may end up that it cuts a lot of development cost and time down on, on the actual applications for phones because you can do it with um, sort of web-based uh, widgetry. I, I, in, in Greece, we have heard of the iPhone, and I think someone in, had one in Athens once, but uh, I've, I've, never, I've never played with it, so um, I, I've, it's not an area that I've really, really look, looked at. 
How many widgets is too many widgets, and what do you do about that? I think it's, you know, it's your, uh, uh, it's your seven rule. I think you can't have too many things on your screen. It's the same as, as lists and that. I, I think that's about as much as you can put on a, a desktop. And, uh, and the same with a, web, uh, with a website. If you're adding them to your page, I mean, obviously, if you look at any MySpace pages of, uh, you know, 13-year-old kids, then uh, there are, can never be too many widgets. Um, but, but I think for a, you know, a serious work environment or seriously looking at, at building a web page with widgetized content, then you're kind of looking at the same general rules that you would apply to how much navigation you would have on a page and how many options you're going to present to users in one go. More questions? I've seen some uh, widgets that are basically jump, allow you to jump to some other online content. So it becomes sort of a, a springboard. And then some that are just basically will give you some uh, information, like the countdown you showed. And then uh, the sort of emerging pattern of possibly having widgets where you have an interaction, a multi-screen interaction just within the widget. Have you thought about whether that particular pattern of having sort of widget applications is something that is going to be increasing or not really something that makes sense for the widgets? I think if, if you're looking at a difficult multiple page interaction, then I kind of feel that it's always going to be better to do it in a bigger space rather than in a small space. But I think where the potential for those kind of things in widgets is actually going back to the mobile platform is that maybe actually you're going to need to condense those kind of things so that they can be used across different mobile devices. I think there's, there's an opportunity for widgets there. But I kind of, if you're looking at it on the web, you're kind of already in that environment where, where you're on a page and it's a unit on a page. And I, I'm kind of, I'm not sure people are going to start scrolling and clicking through a small, small area on a page rather than want to go to a sort of full transactional thing for that. It's my feeling. Does that mean we can get lunch early then? It does, but firstly a reminder, um, instead of the Jasmine room where we were for lunch, we were in the Riverwalk Centre, and that's going up the escalators and turning to the left. Thank you for Martin. Thank you very much.